Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Happy Thursday, Bill. Happy Thursday, and it's an early one for us. We've got a, uh, a guest that we'll introduce in a minute uh, from the West Coast. Yeah, so, so if it's early for us. It's, it's super it's early, early for him, but, for but he's a Marine, so he can handle that. He, he loves it. Yep. He's, he's super moto, and he's ready to tell us what's up. Yep. Um, but in the meantime, I noticed it was back to school time yesterday as I was leaving Beach Hall because it was like the Indy 500 with firsties moving their cars um, out here on Hospital Point reminiscent of when you and I were firsties. Um, you know, you get parking privileges on the yard and all kinds of stuff. So yep. we are in back-to-school mode. The brigade had, quote-unquote, reform yesterday. Yeah, they, they, had, they had to move back into their academic year rooms, right. and uh, there was a, a backup for the, the main gates and gate eight to get on the base, and suddenly it wasn't summer anymore. Right, and so we can't complain. That's why the Naval Institute... <laughs> Or the Naval Academy, rather, is here, and we're yeah. lucky at the Naval Institute to be co-located. We love it. And so it also reminds us that our summer internship program is drawing to a close. Tomorrow is the last day for our third block of interns. And uh, as we did our inaugural summer last year, we very much have enjoyed having MIDS as colleagues this summer. Day before yesterday, we went to the Pentagon uh, and shadowed Sam Legrone as he did his business around um, the Pentagon and the press office there as the editor-in-chief of USNI News. And they also got a special session with the chief of information, the Navy's chief of information, Admiral Charlie Brown. So that was really great. We thank Admiral Brown once again for taking the time to talk to the interns about what is Navy public affairs and what should their orientation be towards public affairs, particularly once they're commissioned officers. So that was really a gift to have some quality time with Admiral Brown. And as we've said before, we're putting the September issue to bed. It's our special Top Gun 50th issue. We will be at, at Tail, Tail Hook, Hook yep. in Reno. Uh, in Reno. 5 to 8 September. 5 to 8 September. Looking forward booth, to that. What's our booth number? 534, I think, is the yes. booth number. 534. Yeah. And uh, we're going to have uh, a copy of the September issue. will be in everybody's gift bag out everybody's there. Everybody's goodie bag. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, episodes of the podcast from the convention floor. With, with all with, kinds of principles, including authors of our special proprietary content in the September issue. Yep. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but this really is, as it comes together, you can just see it's really a special issue. It's going to be about 24 pages in the magazine uh, on uh, the history of Top Gun, uh, written by five uh, yeah, five graduates of Top Gun, uh, two of them current and former COs of the school, uh, plus another piece, a sort of a bonus article from the Center for Naval Analysis. Uh, CNA has always had, I guess since 1975, a scientist co-located with Top Gun, helping them, you know, base their tactics and, and uh, weapons, uh, employment, all kinds of things on uh, scientific data and modeling. And, and that's a very cool um, part of the package. So 24 pages starting on page 18 of the uh, September issue. It's a special collector's edition. Instead of a, a typical 96-page magazine, it's going to be 104 pages. We added eight pages to make room for more uh, Top Gun content, plus another a whole bunch of other great articles, including a, an amazing tidbit of history, which is, uh, did, did you know that... Uh, F-14s uh, at one point landed on the Midway. I did know this because Tal Manville tells me this every time 
Uh, I see him because <laughs> he was the Chang on Midway. When that happened. We had Tal on the podcast talking yep. about refueling Truman some episodes ago. Um, but yes, I see Tal at the golf course all the time. And he's like, you know, there were Tomcats on the Midway because yep. he has this shirt, this golf shirt that's a Midway golf shirt. And there are Tomcats on that. I'm like, hey, hold it. Wait He's like, well, you know, technically there were Tomcats. Now they were never. There was never an entire squadron, right? I think um, it was a. It was a one RON. Uh, well, remember Ted Carter uh, during yeah, he, his he podcast, mentioned he mentioned That's the right. sea story where they it. shot yeah. two Tomcats off, off Enter- um, Enterprise. No, it was it was on uh, it was it was on because there were Tomcats on Enterprise. It was on Midway. Yeah, because but, but, but they they. They were, oh, they were from Enterprise. They were Enterprise they were, Burst, yes, right? Yes. And uh, Enterprise had got weathered out. Right. Uh, and so they recovered on Midway, stayed overnight one night, yep. didn't get zapped too much. Yeah, and probably. Then, and then launched the next morning to go right. back to, uh, and I think the, the year was 1981 or 82. And he mentioned that they could only shoot one at a time because the bow was narrow. Yeah. You couldn't stage two on the bow of right. the Midway. Right. Um, anyway, and that's in our Lest We Forget. Lest We Forget of podcast. The September issue. Right. So check those podcasts. We just referenced two pod- podcast episodes, the Tal Manville Refuel of Truman and the Ted Carter. That's right. Um, right on the eve of his retirement and change of command. Right. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that one, that one is full of cool sea stories. Um, you know, our good friend Ted Carter was uh, definitely uh, in a reminiscent mode. It was fantastic. And yeah. so he did tell that story as yeah. well. I want to uh, mention three contests that we have going right now. Uh, so the first one, uh, with the deadline of 30 September, we are bringing back the Naval Institute photo contest. Uh, so it, you'll find an advertisement for it in proceedings. You can go on our website, look proceedings and, and essay contest. Uh, it's there. We're going to tweet it out some more as well, put it on our Facebook page, but, um, open to anybody. Uh, Navy, Marine Corps, Sea Service related photographs. It's got to be an original photograph, your photograph. Uh, you've got to be willing to give us the rights to use it. Uh, first prize is $500. Uh, every, uh, anyone can, uh, can go under our website and enter a photo. Uh, they'll be judged, uh, probably at the end of September, beginning of October. And we we plan to use some of those, uh, to beef up our photo archives, but also to use, uh, to illustrate great content, uh, in, uh, in proceedings coming in, in 2020. So that's the first one. Second so one. So will those will the winners be published in proceedings? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll publish the winning uh, photographs. Uh, we'll we'll also recognize the winning uh, photographers. Uh, first prize five hundred dollars. I think second prize is two fifty. Uh, a whole bunch of um, uh, extra prizes. Just you know, small things like t-shirts and uh, memberships to the Naval Institute, that sort of thing. Uh, we don't have a sponsor for this contest, uh, but we're bringing it back because uh, because we want to. And there's a, there's a demand and a desire for more original photographs uh, for us to have in our archives and also just to, uh, you know, sort of beef up the, the cool factor for proceedings. And what right we now. can say is your work will be seen by a gigantic audience. Absolutely. You know, if the photographer's out there going, right. what's in it for me? Right. That it's, yeah, it's in a, massive. In, a, in addition um, to maybe winning $500, impact. right? But yeah. also other no, things. No, it's, it's yeah. even yeah. B- bigger than the money is right. the impact. The other two contests we got going right now, the uh, uh, annual leadership essay contest, which is sponsored by Dr. Philip London and CACI in International. That's open to 01 through 04 of Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard. Uh, 
uh, writing about the topic of leadership. Uh, details are on our website and details are also in proceedings August and the September issue. Deadline for that, I think, is uh, end of October. And then the last one I'll mention is the Midshipmen and Cadets Essay Contest. This is the second running of that one. We started it last year. General Dynamics Information Technology sponsors that essay contest. It's open to anybody in a commissioning source or a commissioning program. So Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy, ROTC, um, OCS, you name it. Uh, if you are in a commissioning program for the sea services, uh, you can write about essentially any topic that's of interest to you uh, related to the sea services, related to leadership, related to being uh, commissioned, a commission officer, that sort of thing. Um, and the details are in proceedings and on our website. And the deadline for that one is 31 October. Uh, so three great contests coming right now. Uh, you know, if you have, if you're interested in writing, if you know somebody who may not have heard of those, uh, but is a midshipman or cadet or a young officer, uh, turn them on to those contests because great opportunities to win money, to be published, uh, to get recognition and, um, you know, to raise your profile. So kind of and that's cool a, stuff. And that's a great, uh, also segue to the sponsored student program. So we mentioned this on the show last time, but but Admiral Daly, our CEO, has started outreach to professors of naval science at NROTC units nationwide, as well as service academies, which is to say Navy and Coast Guard companies. As the donors come in and our foundation is working very hard to re-up donors for the existing schools we had last year, as well as some new schools. So this year we have University of Washington, University of Southern California, there's some others in there. So the population of those who are eligible for our sponsored student membership program is growing. So if you're out there in the listening audience and you are at an ROTC or an NROTC unit or one of the service academy companies, highly recommend that you take advantage of this gift. Um, and what will happen is your company officer, your, your professor of naval science, will socialize uh, the link that we build for each unit specifically Go up that link, fill out the very short interstitial, and accept the gift, and that is it. You start getting proceedings, printer digital. You have access to the archives, which is amazing, 1874 until now. Word searchable. You type in Nimitz. You got Lieutenant Nimitz from 1912 writing about submarines. You type in Cushman, and you got Lieutenant Colonel Cushman later comment on the Marine Corps talking about what is the post-war Marine Corps posture. So if you're crashing late at night for a history project or a term paper or a pro report, this is straight gouge. And as we said, you also get Proceedings Magazine, which is the conversation that's relevant to you, even as a midshipman. So this is a very cool gift. We're in our eighth year now. If you don't have it, ask your company officer or professor of naval science about it. If you do have it, accept the gift. And it's going to be coming to you by the time we get into mid-September. Um, you should have the opportunity to sign up. So look for that. Yep. And uh, and speaking of sponsored students, our guest today is a former sponsored student uh, and now longtime member of the Naval Institute, uh, Second Lieutenant L.J. Winnefeld. Uh, his article on uh, is called Call in the Blue-Green Cavalry appears in the August issue of the magazine, starting on pages uh, 32 and 33. Uh, Second Lieutenant Winnefeld, thanks for joining us today. You're calling from Camp Pendleton, California. Good morning, uh, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for getting up extra early for us, um, and thanks for writing for Proceedings. Uh, so for our uh, our listeners, this article is about how the Marine Corps could use the littoral combat ships that the Navy's built. Uh, we've talked about the LCS a lot on this 
uh, program. We've had a number of people talk about it. It's been a controversial program, but you are the first person, uh, LJ, that um, has come up with this idea that I'm, I'm aware of, uh, of how the Marine Corps could use uh, the littoral combat ships. So talk a little bit about that idea and how that idea came in your head. So the basic idea is to incorporate the LCS within the new and the ARG team. Uh, my article calls for incorporating both the Freedom variant and the Independence variant into to complement one another as a part of the new ARG team. Uh, and the way that this idea kind of came about, uh, like most ideas, it took kind of two seeming related actions, to uh, seeming unrelated uh, events to create uh, this this you know new concept in my own mind. Uh, the first thing that happened was while I was at the basic school in Quantico, Virginia, they have a really, really good portion of the period of instruction where they really focus on AMFIB operations. They focus on the MU, uh, and it culminates in what's called AMFIB FEX or AMFIB field exercise, where young second lieutenants going through the basic school go down to Norfolk and actually get on board an amphibious ship and go through the whole R2P2 process uh, in preparation for actually pretending to assault, you know, back up at Quantico, Virginia, uh, for our culminating exercise there. Um, and so while we were going through this period of instruction at the basic school, uh, I kept hearing, uh, you know, the heavyweight fighter, the middleweight fighter, the heavyweight fighter being the LHD and the LHA, and the middleweight fighter being the LPD and the LSD. But I never really heard anything about a lightweight fighter. And I would ask questions about the lightweight fighter. And while they were answered well, because all the instructors down at TBS are really dedicated to driving home and, and, and answering students' questions to the fullest extent, I was never really satisfied with the answers that were given to me in regards to a lightweight fighter. When I was reading the article, I love the, the analogy that you just laid out. So let's talk about Marine complement on each currently and how in your idea, the, the lightweight fighter would would plug into the existing MU construct? So the existing MU construct being the three-ship uh, construct that's been in use for, for a while now, I, would, I wanted to experiment with having an LHA, an LPD, an LSD, and two LCS ships, one of each variant, because each variant is different and each variant has strengths that the other doesn't. And they can, you work together uh, in concert to provide more mobility, more lethality, and a scalable mu to that, uh, to that commander. So what are the, what are some, for the Marine Corps, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the two different platforms? The independence variant has a much larger flight deck. Than the, than the Freedom variant, which can support a CH-53 for heavy lift and mobility. Uh, the Freedom variant uh, can also support, with its flight deck, it can support a possible Huey Cobra team to provide the air combat element to that scalable MU. Additionally, the maneuverability that these platforms bring to the, uh, to the, con to the, to the fight will allow the commander to use his forces in ways that he'd never been able to use them before. I talk about it as a, as a cavalry-like force. He could use the LCS to, you know, feign an assault. He could use uh, the LCS to gain an intel to, to 
you know, push ahead of the Mew in order to scout out a straight or a port that the Mew will be going through uh, in, in, in the following days. Uh, he could also use it as a completely disassociated, disaggregated group to go take care of a, a smaller mission that doesn't require a large amphibious footprint. So there's a lot of uh, capability, there's a lot of maneuverability, there's, there's a lot of flexibility that these ships would provide uh, if they were integrated into the MU. So in your idea, I think some of the criticism of, of LCS is, uh, you know, short legs um, can go fast, needs to be refueled a lot. Um, so how, how would they coordinate, let's say the, the MU, you know, leaves Kaneohe and, and, and Pearl and heads for Westpac, um, would the, do you think the LCS would be staged already over there or would they somehow go in company with the MU? Um, how do you think that would work? I think that the most viable option for this to actually work would be to have those LCSs forward deployed, um, staged over there already. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about pre-positioning forces overseas, and uh, I think that you could reasonably have the LCSs over there waiting for the MU to, to arrive from wherever it's coming from, East Coast or West Coast. And these MUs are already, or these LCSs are already set up with uh, blue-green, uh, blue-team and gold-team teams, so you don't have to have the entire team over there forward deployed you know, year round, you can switch sw- and swap these teams out. Um, but the short legs problem comes by having to traverse, you know, an entire ocean to get to the hot spots in the world. You could ha- easily have the LCS sitting there waiting over there for the Mew to come over and meet it, uh, in, in the hot spots around the world. Well, plus you've already got Marines, uh, forward deployed in, in Sasebo, uh, ARG ships in, in Sasebo. You've got, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility, some, some discussion has been about, uh, having LCSs forward deployed in places like Rota, Spain, or maybe even in the Baltic. Um, but places where, as you said, you know, if a, if a Marine was deploy, if a, a MU was deploying a Mar- an ARG MU, uh, that the LCS, if could meet it there, could already be there. There's been, uh, you know, talk about forward deploying a squadron of a small squadron of uh, LCSs in Singapore is another place, right? Um, one of the things I I wanted to ask you, uh, LJ, was uh, as the LCS has been uh, designed and configured for these mission packages, and you know, at at first they were going to be interchangeable. You could swap out mine warfare for the SUW, surface warfare for an ASW package. Now they're looking like they're going to uh, have each ship permanently configured for one of those missions, right? And the mine warfare is going to be is, is the package that's closest to being completed, um, probably followed by the surface warfare package. Uh, do you anticipate if, if the Marines were using LCSs, would there be a need for a specific package? Would an SUW, the surface warfare package, be the best package? Would more of an uh, of an air capability be wanted you know what kinds of a what kind of a weapons package would the LCS need to have to be best suited to support the the marines in a cavalry kind of mission i think that there there would probably most likely have to be a package designed to support the marines on board an LCS the LCS itself the reason why you include it into the MUARG, i think is 
because of the flexibility and the mobility and the ability to put a smaller force and move it around uh, more rapidly in, in ways that you wouldn't be able to do normally with the original Mu construct. So in terms of, you know, adding more defense capability or, or, or air capability or, uh, you know, adding more weapons to the LCS, I don't think that there's an overwhelming need to necessarily do that. I think what you're really focused on is, you know, adding that maneuverability piece to the Mew. And I think you would need to have to build a, a package specific for the Marines on board because there are certain issues such as, you know, birthing space and, and room for equipment or uh, room for, for other things that the Marines need to bring with them to the fight uh, that I don't necessarily know uh, if, those, if there would be room for that on the other packages. Let's just think, think uh, out loud here. One of the mission sets that you were talking about earlier is, let's just call it like a Pathfinder mission where the LCS would go into choke points or wherever ahead of the, the Mu Arg. Um, and, and do raider missions, right? I mean, this sort of scouting. So you want to get in and get out. You don't want to have any kinetic activity and the self protection that you might need in that situation beyond what is organic to the LCS could be covered by, um, you know, a single cobra, right? Uh, something like that. Um, so I, I think if you look at what a recon unit does or a raider unit does organically, if you can put that aboard, an LCS, and and the LCS is just the delivery device, right? Low profile, quick speeds in and out. Then, as you've said, LJ, you don't need a whole bunch of other things organic to the LCS itself. Obviously, you need comms capability, some surface search capability, and I don't know what LCS has uh, in terms of its uh, its its radar and and you know surface search package, um, but. Um, you know, I I would assume it's it's uh, robust enough to accomplish the basic, uh, you know, early detect or at least reasonable detect of small surface combatants coming at you, that kind of thing. And then beyond that, you know, I don't know what else they'd need besides you know the the covered radios and other things that they would need to be either a um, a relay to the the you know, command and control back on an LHD or an LHA. Yeah, and, and for Navy configuration, they're already uh, essentially planning to put uh, a 60, a manned helicopter, and and uh, as well as uh, an MQ-8C or B on board an unmanned helicopter to do a you know, over-the-horizon scouting mission. Oh, that's right? a good point. Yeah, for both an ASUW mission and, and potentially for other missions as well, ASW or, or mine warfare. Uh, so swapping out one of those helicopters for a Marine Cobra or on the... Or whatever uh, MARSOC's using UAV-wise, yeah, right? right? Whether it's Raven or or whatever. Right. The Navy's put Scan Eagle on anything and everything. Yeah, right. So know, there's right, not a whole the, lot of infrastructure and redesigns required, required for that. Right. Yeah. So again, the, the LCS, which, let's be candid, is in search of viable missions right now. You know, this seems, LJ's idea seems on target, like yeah, ready on arrival. Yeah, LJ, have you had any feedback on your article yet, either from Marines or from Navy folks who may have read it? So I haven't been specifically approached from anybody within the Marine Corps or the Navy. I have, just out of curiosity, I wanted to see the discussion around the article on the Naval Institute uh, website. And it seems like that there's 
kind of mixed results, as, as is to be expected when you write anything about the LCS. But there have been some people who kind of backed me up here and said, hey, you know, this is a young kid who's not buying into the, to the, to the propaganda, to, to all of uh, the talk about how, how poorly the LCS has kind of gotten onto its feet up to this point. Um, and then there are plenty of people who are kind of, you know, not even letting in the, the idea into the door. They're stopping it. You know, they think it's dead on arrival. And they're not even willing to consider the conversation uh, that I'm trying to provoke by bringing this idea forward. Um, and, and honestly, what I'm ha- the happiest about is that there's actual real discussion about m- my article about using the LCS within the MU, um, and potentially it could lead to something you know, further down the line to make us a more lethal force. That's what's really important. So as we sit here, and I was talking to US9 News Editor-in-Chief Sam Legrone yesterday about LCS. So check me on this, Bill. I think we have 12 now that are, uh, and I don't know if that's just pack fleet complement, but there are 12 out there, you know, that are the both freedom and independence class. Yeah, that have been commissioned yes. and are, you know, beyond, you know, further along beyond uh, just launched, right? Yes. So I think they've launched up to, it's like 18 or 19 now, but I think there the, are 12 the that are in, are, let's just say, in operational fleet, use. Op- operational yeah. use in the yeah. fleet, right. And I'm not sure what their mission sets, besides the bad news of being welded to the pier um, in Singapore for a year because of a mechanical breakdown or... Uh, stuck in the ice of, uh, you know, Lake Erie. Right. So the first two of each class are being used as experimental ships to develop tactics and to try out the new um, equipment and, and, you know, put the uh, the first naval strike missile on, et, et cetera, right? Uh, so those first two of each class are going to be um, development boats, if you will. Uh, beyond that, they're looking, you know, uh, at, at uh, having LCSs uh, in San Diego and also down in Mayport. So those are the two east and west coast concentration areas for uh, the squadrons. Uh, and and the mine warfare module is the module that is closest to being uh, through its suitability and, and starting to uh, load that on. But they've also started to put uh, some pretty interesting capabilities on the LCSs, right? So the, the naval strike missile is going to start going on. I forget which um, hull gets it first, but that's the Kongsberg Raytheon missile that's, you know, uh, an incredibly capable anti-surface warfare platform uh, or cap- uh, missile, uh, probably much better than the Harpoon. Um, and so LCS is going to start to get that. They've started to put the uh, the Longbow, it was a Hellfire Longbow missile on uh, LCSs. Uh, they're going to beef up some of the gun capabilities, uh, the mine warfare package with the, um, things like the, the knife fish or kingfish, um, mine warfare UUVs. So th- th- these, um, platforms, while they have been, you know, where they were built and kind of stripped because of cost growth, stripped in the procurement process of capabilities. Now that they're out there, the Navy is, is, you know, spending money to put capabilities on them. Well, it wasn't just cost, right? It was it was cost as a function of not proving out in test. Yeah. Right? And and so there was, as you said, there was this conception where you'd have these modular packages, plug and play, um, you know, all three mission sets, and it just didn't, it wasn't working. So, yeah, what is it? Cost, schedule, performance is the coin of the realm in defense procurement and, you know, the developmental test and, and T&E. Um, and if you're not meeting it, then there's problems as we create budgets and, and the NDA every year, you know, and there are programs that have gotten a lot of visibility, 
F-35 comes to mind. V-22 had its problems in, in test. Every really procurement program in the history right. of DOD has had some uh, issues. But at the end, and maybe it even happens post-IOC, you know, you can say this about my airplane, the F-14, you know, started as a strict air-to-air platform, became a very viable and lethal precision bombing platform because of the environment around it, around at the time. You know, it's an, a platform that had some inherent capability that wasn't realized because there was no need. So let's just say that LCS and LJ's idea here, there's a lot of sort of executable go-do's, I think. And so the question becomes, um, who would have to talk to whom in the near term to make LJ's idea, even let's let's say, let's do a bilat where a, a mu does this and sees and, and experiments with how it, how it works. Would this be a headquarters Marine Corps to OpNav? Is this a Marine Corps developmental command to NAVC? What, who has to talk to who here? Yeah, I think uh, the, the timing for your article, LJ, is probably uh, quite excellent because you got the new commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, mm-hmm. just put out this, you know, very uh, a document, the commandant's planning guidance, which is uh, he, he's trashed some of the sacred cows, right? He's he's basically well, the post nine eleven sacred cows, right? Yes, I mean, this is this but, is but where... even even pre nine eleven sacred cows in terms of how many um, you know amphibious ships do we need to okay, have? Okay, yeah, right? your program of record, program of record, cows. all those things, right? Yeah. Uh, and and he is very much looking to experiment. Uh, to get back, get the Marine Corps back to its blue, its navy roots. Yeah, so that's roots, the point. Right? Back to its roots, yep. and um, its utility, its differentiator. Right? Because what the fear is, is if if the Marine Corps just becomes an army light, then that's not so good. And this is again, you look at Lieutenant Colonel Cushman's article, and I I invite members to go up the proceedings archives and search for Lieutenant Colonel Cushman, nineteen forty eight. And at the creation of the U.S. Air Force, the Air Force came out of the box and said, hey, Congress, you don't need two things because now you have an Air Force and B-36s. You don't need aircraft carriers and you don't need, wait for it, the United States Marine Corps. So not just Marine Air, you don't need a Marine Corps. And so Lieutenant Colonel Cushman, later the 25th Commandant of the Marine Corps, wrote an article in 1948 that, that really was a treatise in why you need a Marine Corps. And it's about from the sea. So this is what... Um, the new commandant is talking about a return to our roots, a return to, uh, you know, from the sea and all that doctrine, which was kind of lost with, um, you know, Camp Leatherneck and the other stuff that we've done in Afghanistan. If you're just another ground force, right. um, then uh, the core mission is is sort of lost. And when you get into tough funding times, you know, the Hill starts asking, the Hask and the Sass start asking. So remind me why you guys instead of these guys, you right. know, and that's that's not good. So it's a smart play it is. by the commandant. Definitely. But it does start to talk about mission sets. And as you said, this is why LJ's idea is very timely. Yeah. I, I want to get make sure that we get it out to uh, Admiral Brown at Naval Surface Forces, uh, also to the, uh, uh, the the WTIs that are out at um, Naval Surface Mine Warfare Development Center, yeah. right? So we've talked to some of those WTIs on our, yeah. you know, the surface warfare WTIs on our on our uh, program. Some of them have written for us, right? Let's get this idea out. And, and let the Marine Corps let, Systems Command, right? Yeah, and the program managers for Combat uh, Development Command. Things. Yes, yep. yes. We've got uh, friends down at uh, Marine Corps Training and Education Command as well. Yep. Um, it's a cool idea. It is. It's a great idea. So really. I met LJ 
um, when he was a midshipman and he came over here when I was brand new on the team a couple of years ago, and he had a laundry list of ways that the Naval Institute could better reach midshipmen. And, you know, again, this guy's been, was, been it, a thinker and, and he's the poster child for a junior officer as using the forum effectively. Um, so LJ, congratulations on this fantastic article. You're already thinking like an expeditionary warfare school student, um, so you're literally five years ahead of your time, At which least. is to be expected because right. you very much are that kind of a guy. LJ, tell us what a little bit about what you're doing out there at Camp Pendleton. What's your MOS and uh, where are you in your training uh, cycle right now and when do you expect to deploy? So right now I'm uh, a 0802, which is an artillery officer <clears throat> in the Marine Corps. I'm out in Camp Pendleton with 2nd Battalion, 11th Marines, and we are, my battery is currently scheduled to deploy on the 31st Mew, uh, in May of 2020 ish around there. Um, but again, like everything in the Marine Corps that can, that can change. Uh, there's a lot of time in there for that to change, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the fleet so far. I'm enjoying my command, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited for the, the next couple of years. So what's a day in your life like now? What, what are you doing? So showing up to work, I'm still relatively new to the fleet. Um, so I'm working through uh, a lot of some of the administrative stuff that comes with that. Um, but we just had a, a, a field op, a backyard, what we call a backyard shoot yesterday, where we went out uh, into uh, Camp Pendleton and, and shot into an impact area literally no more than, than 10 miles away from where the offices are. Uh, and got some really good training in. We did 24-hour operations uh, and came back from the field last night and are kind of, uh, you know, doing maintenance and, and, and gear inspections and wall-to-walls and, and getting ready uh, to, to move forward as we move into other field ops. Like we have WTI down in Yuma later in September and then uh, an operation called Steel Night in, in December. So we've, we've got a lot on the on the plate for this this upcoming uh, fall and, and early winter. Um, but yeah. And you're a battery commander. I am not a battery commander. No, no, no. I'm, I am the, uh, I'm the fire direction officer, uh, within the, within the battery. So essentially I'm working with my uh, counterpart staff sergeant, who is, is a, a, what we call an operations chief to run the fire direction center within a battery, which is, uh, the way I like to describe artillery is, is you have the eyes, the brain and the muscle, the eyes being the observers, the muscle being the actual guns, and the brain being the fire direction center. So we take target locations from the observer and we calculate data that we then send down to the muscle, which is the gun line. Uh, and so I'm, I'm helping to run that fire direction center uh, with the operations chief. What kind of artillery are you guys using? What's, what's your uh, gear? We use the uh, M777, which is a 155. Uh, howitzer is that a is that a pretty new piece of gear or is it a legacy what 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 era is that so it it's it's relatively new um you know we we, we had I think it was the mic 198 uh but it's it's relatively new as of at least this decade if not if not sooner i don't know the exact date it came into operation but uh, it's a really really cool piece of equipment it can it has a lot of capabilities and it's, and it's only getting more improved and advanced every year the artillery community is very very good particularly in the marine corps uh about 
trying to find new ways to be more lethal, to be faster, uh, and to get rounds accurately on target the first time as fast as possible. So when you guys shot yesterday from your backyard, as you put it, how many rounds you put down range? Yesterday we put down, it was 177 rounds yesterday. Wow, that's pretty cool. That seems like a lot, yeah. So your, uh, what do we call it, the non-combat expenditure allowance, is it satisfactory, you think? Are you guys having to uh, sort of shepherd your your firings because you're limited? Well, uh, with my limited experience in the fleet, I don't know if I can really accurately answer that question just now. Uh, based off of what I've heard talking with other lieutenants and talking with uh, some of the other staff in O uh, within the battery, it seems like we get plenty of opportunity to shoot uh, and plenty of opportunity to get good training. Um, you know, the artillery community and the Marine Corps supports all of the infantry, and there's a lot more infantry battalions than there are artillery battalions. Uh, and so we get, a, we get ample opportunity to get out there uh, to not only support maneuver, but to also be able to trained to internal battery specific tasks and and uh, and wickets that we want to hit that's fantastic so you guys are a, a high demand support asset then so when the infantry's out in the field practicing they want you guys out there and uh, integrating with them and, mm-hmm. yeah that's that's awesome. well if you look at the ops in afghanistan you know it's all about our, our, our artillery and close air support yeah you know so uh, yeah super important asset and and artillery in, in, in many senses is not going away. You look at the commandant's planning guidance, and 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 he he talks about HIMARS, which is rocket artillery. But artillery is not going away anytime soon, and, and long range precision strike is definitely not going away anytime soon. Absolutely fantastic. Well, LJ, uh, thanks for this article, and as we've suggested, hopefully the right people read it and take action on it. We're super proud of you for what you're doing out there and uh, for your. Ongoing contributions to the Independent Forum. Keep them coming. Can't wait to see what you're going to write next. And uh, we would love to hear from you when you uh, get on deployment last next year. Uh, so we've had on the show today, uh, Second Lieutenant LJ Winnefeld. LJ, fair winds and following seas. Uh, hope to hear from you again. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. And for our listeners, until next week, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Have a good one. Thanks, LJ. No problem.